Welcome to the Austin Forum Upload, the podcast of the Austin Forum on technology and society. I'm Jay Boisseau, the executive director and founder of the Austin Forum, and I'm here with two of my Austin Forum colleagues and two of my colleagues in Vizius, the company that actually executes the Austin Forum. I'm here with John Lockman, the Austin Forum technology director and the Vizius CTO, and Luke Wilson, who serves as Vizius chief analytics officer. Thanks for joining us on the Austin Forum Upload, guys. Thanks, Jay. Hey, good to be here. Well, we're going to have a fun conversation today because this is our Tech Trends for 2023 mid-year review. Um, as our audience probably knows, the Austin Forum starts every year with a live event for Tech Trends for the year. Uh, this is the mid-year checkpoint, and we're going to do this one in podcast form. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we can uh, evaluate where we are at the halfway point of the year in terms of what's changed since the beginning of the year, what tech trends have emerged that maybe we didn't foresee at the beginning of the year, or at least not in scale. And so with that, I think we all know what the obvious number one is, but I'm going to turn it over to uh, Luke. Luke, what is the uh, most obvious tech trend uh, change you've seen at the halfway point? Well, I think uh, halfway through the year, we've seen this explosion in generative AI, you know, I don't, you know, very few people were talking about it right at the beginning of the year. And all of a sudden it has blown up. Everyone thinks they're an expert. Everyone is assuming that they know what they're doing with it. Um, everyone is trying to monetize it as quickly as they can. And so, you know, the idea that, you know, people think they've figured out what the, you know, that this is the next big thing is, uh, is definitely the, at the top of the hype cycle right now. Yeah, I mean, generative AI, right? We were we were talking about uh, I don't know what back in like 2019, um, doing the uh, can you tell which face was was AI generated sort of test, um, and it was still pretty niche, like small groups of people talking about this mm -hmm. research world. Hey, look, there's look at these cool tricks we can do with with some GPUs, and to see that change uh, just the exponential explosion since January um, with, you know, like ChatGPT um, and then all of the other, um, you know, open source folks in the, in the space, like uh, Stability AI, uh, Hugging Face, um, people, you know, it was, it started out as, wow, look at this, look at this really interesting thing that can generate text. And now I think we're looking at, okay, look at these, 40 different models that can generate text. Which one's better? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's clear that generative AI is the top tech trend as we are in the midpoint of the year. I mean, at the very beginning of the year, ChatGPT had been out for 30 days, and certainly it had already gotten lots of usage, attention, and hype in the first 30 days. And a a record uh, subscriber account for any online service in just 30 days. But it was still... 30 days and pretty much by itself among the text generation tools in the generative AI space. And, and by the way, I think that's really important. I think the fact that, you know, as John, as you mentioned, in 2019, we were evaluating whether this face was generated by AI or was an actual photo and such. And I'm, I'm all in on the AI image generation tools, but I think the fact that it could generate conversational text is what got many people just so amazed by it because it it made it seem like it was communicating with you like a human as opposed to 
photoshopping an image in a smarter way for you in some way. And I, I really think the LLMs have been the, the fuel behind the overall explosion in generative AI for the first half of the year. Yeah, I think it's it's a new it's just a new AI bubble. We we kind of go through these these hype cycles with different AI tools. You know, we spent several years kind of doing the image tools. You know, anything based on a convolutional neural network was a big thing in 2016, 2017, um, all the way up to about 2020. And then uh, transformer models show up, and, and those have now turned into large language models. Um, which is great um, it, until you think about how much it takes to actually train one of these large language models. Um, hopefully the next um, the next bubble in this space will be small language models and tiny I, language models. I hope so. Uh, they're, they're targeted language models. Right? Yeah, I think we're, I mean, clearly that's gotta be the next step for enterprise to realize real value out of this. Targeted language models they can afford to make and that they can monetize and that, don't have a cutoff date of September 21, like uh, uh, 2021, like ChatGPT does. It includes all the enterprise uh, data that they want to be trained in it. But but I don't think this bubble is the same, right? We we saw record signups for ChatGPT uh, compared to any other previous AI service. This one I really think is different because language is different. It's the one way all people... Un- know how to communicate they're not they don't all have computer skills they can't all code they don't all feel comfortable with digital devices but everybody talks and listens or or essentially everybody or reads and writes and so this the the llm tools have created a bigger bubble than we've seen and i think the question is is it a bubble or is it a plateau what are y'all's thoughts on that you know i i think we always talk about how uh, you know, transformers are an application of deep learning, which is just a subset of machine learning that is a small subset of the the base right. of AI. So um, <laughs> we break it all the way down to talk about such a very specific implementation of one piece of AI. Um, is it a bubble? No, I think it's just our, you know, our exploration has finally found some pieces that are really mm-hmm. useful um, that are some interesting tools that'll probably help us along in other ways too, as we've already seen um, the optimization of linear algebra, uh, basic blahs uh, last year from, uh, or no, earlier this year from uh, an AI model. And out of that was great. We, we found one step faster uh, uh, optimization for the, for our, uh, you know, um, for our, our uh, solution here, but some humans looked at it and said, that's a great idea and took it one step further. So I, I think it's it's really augmenting us in a way. Is it a bubble? I don't think so. I think it's it's that first little piece that gives us the extra tool to do the next step. I think large language models are really at the top of the hype cycle right now. And so I, I would consider this a bubble. I think it's going to calm before it plateaus. And, and the reason I think that is because there is an enormous amount of tolerance for some of the garbage that is getting spewed out of LLMs. We, we, are, we are currently okay tolerating hallucinations from these models. Mm-hmm. And I think when it be, I think that puts us in a bubble just naturally because we are not, we're not objectively evaluating everything it's saying at the moment. Now, once we get to the point where we've said, 
okay, we're confident that what this model is saying is actually believable or is at least not completely crazy, um, then I think we're kind of into that that you know plateau of usability at the end of the hype cycle where where you know we're actually able to do something uh, worthwhile with it. Agreed. And I, I like what John said about augmenting. Um, of course, as you two both know, because you participated in it at our big Austin Forum live event in early June, we had people sitting at tables learning different generative AI tools. But one common theme was these should be used as co-creation tools, as collaborators, not as replacements. They're the LLM models are just not accurate enough yet, although highly useful, great for first drafts, uh, great for making sure to cover some things that maybe you would have forgotten in your first draft, but but still a collaborative tool. And even the image generation tools, it's not like they spit out the perfect image for you the first time every time. There's a lot of work on the prompts. There's a lot of looking at different outputs that were created to see which is the right one and so on. So they really are sort of iterative, collaborative tools in this regard. And, and one of the things that I, I want to see happen, Luke, you mentioned the hallucinations. I don't see them often, but I have seen them. Um, I wonder when they're going to be both LLMs and then add a compiler checker on top of it for things like GitHub Copilot or an LLM plus adding a calculator into it in case somebody asks that to do a math equation, because that's one of the hallucinations we've seen is people ask LLM to solve a math problem and it occasionally gets it wrong since it's not actually calculating. Um, do you think we're going to see LLMs grafted, at least for specific purposes, with syntax checkers, with calculators, with things like that, someone asked to do something that we've already solved a different way, it acts as a, as a corrector on it? I, I think that's the way you have to go. You have to have some sort of verification or discrimination running alongside these things. Yeah. Um, whether it's whether it's a syntax checker or it's a calculator or even another model, which is doing discrimination to say whether or not mm, this looks yeah. legitimate or not. I mean, I look at a lot of these generative AI tools like uh, PhotoFill. I don't know if you've ever tried this, but you you do a you take a headshot of somebody and then you do a photo fill on it. And you will be amazed at how many times you see seven fingers or two left hands. And so you got to have something on the back side to discriminate. Say this doesn't look like a legitimate picture, or this doesn't sound like you're actually solving the problem. And you know, on the accessibility of those tools, you know, we've already seen Gen AI is now in Photoshop just popped in a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can now do that, uh, you know, kind of out painting like you're describing, like take a take a portrait and say, I want a, this person in front of a castle or something like this. Um, I think that's, that's pretty amazing. Um, even Marvel just adopted uh, using Gen AI for the opening sequence to Secret Invasion. Um, it's interesting to see how quickly that's been adopted into mainstream everything. Did they adopt generative AI for the opening sequence because they wanted to use generative AI or because the writer's strike affects illustrators and everybody else as well? I heard it was the latter. I wasn't sure that's, a was that's a great question. That's a great question. But uh, how much of that writer's strike is about the fact that we have generative, uh, you know, language models and they're, exactly. and why, yeah. why would, why should we pay these humans to write stories when I have a, perfectly 
kind of story sounding thing coming out of this computer. It depends on the quality of the story you want to tell. <laughs> I've, I've yet to see it produce uh, a Hemingway novel caliber uh, bit of writing yet. But anyway, um, look, so gen, generative AI, gen AI, clearly the biggest, I don't want to say surprise because we did have a sort of 30 days notice with chat GPT coming out a month before the beginning of the year, but still a surprise in how much hype how many tools are out there, how many companies have been spun up, billions and billions and tens of billions of dollars really being invested in startups everywhere that are creating AI tools for text, for voice, for music, for images, and for video. So really seeing it across all these different media, we all agree on that. What's your second biggest observation here at the midpoint of the year about uh, technology trends, I think it's been VR has been the has been the other big big piece we've been talking about lately, right? Um, we just had Apple's ski goggle release, um, love it or hate it. Uh, PlayStation VR two, um, new Meta Quest goggles coming too. Um, it's hitting it's hitting pretty big. It seems um, there's uh there's arcades where you can play all across the country around the world uh competitively and win money in vr um i have a slightly different take on that but luke i want you to go first what is your take on uh is vr an emerging tech trend that we didn't foresee at the beginning of the year or better in some way you know i, th I think we've been talking about vr and ar as an emerging tech trend for at least the last five years and um then 10, 20. I mean, when was the first time you put on a VR headset? I think it's been at least 20 years for me. So certainly strapped a cathode ray tube to my face in the night. I got news for you youngsters. The VRML handbook was written in the 1990s by the folks that I worked with at the San Diego Supercomputer Center. So we've been talking about the hype of uh, virtual reality for at least 30 years. But do you think it's turning the corner? You know, every new headset generation gives a few new features, but I don't know that I've seen anything yet that is truly so substantially different that it's going to break the the stalemate that's kind of happened in the VR space. Um, we have we have var variations on the thing. We have iterations. Like you look at the new um, the new. Uh, Apple VR headset, and you've got this mixture of VR and AR, but th there's nothing new there. So it's we've had VR headsets, we've had augmented reality glasses before. I would argue that Google's original glass design was actually far more versatile than even the the, the new Apple headset, even though you can see transparently through through what you're looking at, um, just because of the the scale of the of the gear you're wearing. But this is a mixture of two things. It's not it's not a new thing. And so, you know, until I see something that says I get double productivity through this thing, or my entertainment experience is so vastly improved by wearing this thing on my face that I, I don't see the need to ever go to the movie theater again. Um, I, I don't think this is the year that this is going to be a breakthrough. Well, in the spirit of long-term friendship that we, the three of us have enjoyed, I'm going to disagree with both of you. So um, I actually think 
I finally get the value of uh, VR and of, I should say really of spatial computing in general, because so much of the brain's processing power is devoted to the interpretation of visual data and thus of spatial reasoning and relationships. And thus, if you use spatial frameworks uh, for even for storing and organizing information, it leverages an additional part of your brain than if your information is stored in a more abstract way. So I have become a fan, uh, weirdly, since reading Snow Crash, which I didn't read decades ago, I only read last year, I, I, I sort of a light bulb went off and I I became a fan of spatial computing in general and augmented reality and, and virtual reality are, are, are part of that. And I by no means think this Apple Vision Pro is going to change it all because it's $3,500 for something you're not going to wear in public. You're going to wear at home but or in the office. But I I do think we're finally seeing the beginning of, of what the promise is, the beginning of something that can do AR and VR. It's not one or the other. It can be both. You can adjust it with a, the little digital crown. And so I have to fall back to Kara Swisher, Kara Swisher from New York Times tech columnist. She's in love with this thing. She's had demos of it. She's seen both productivity apps, entertainment apps, education apps, et cetera. Um, I, I guess what I feel like is it's not a tech trend for mid-2023. It's an exciting uh, toy for a small number of people that actually won't even launch until 2024 that makes me think we'll be talking about VR for everyone in useful ways in 2027, unfortunately. But at least I think that there's now a, a VR light at the end of the VR tunnel. So I think. Now I say that as someone who bought a Sony, uh, one of the new Sony VR headsets and it's still sitting over about 10 feet from me in a box. So I probably should unbox that and get a little bit more experience with it. But uh, so <laughs> I, I think we basically all agree VR is, is uh, there's some consumer tech I, uh, I, products that were released in 2023 or announced in 2023 that give some cause for excitement, but nothing that's going to change the game in the second half of 2023. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Um I'm going to bring up another tech trend that, and it's really a tech and policy trend that I think is reached a fever pitch here at the mid-year point. And it is, will AI be the end of us all? This is something that we've seen open letters from luminaries talking about ceasing AI develop, research and development beyond a certain point. We've seen AI uh, company executives call for policies and regulation, although interestingly, they don't agree with any of the regulations that Europe is passing because it would cause them to <laughs> change things in their own products. Um, at least there is a big global discussion now about whether AI is so powerful and has such potential for misuse and abuse, and in some people's minds, even outright danger, that there should be some policy, some regulation, or at least lots of serious public discussion about, is it dangerous? What do we have to do to ensure that as the capabilities increase exponentially, it doesn't become dangerous before we've had a chance to even implement a guardrail? What do you all think about this as a tech and society trend, really? And uh, where do you think this is headed in the second half of the year? That's mm, uh, arguably always been dangerous. Um, everything we've implemented has probably been dangerous. 
uh, you know, surveillance systems, uh, uh, automatic, um, you know, fraud, fraud systems and things like this. I mean, they all need to be implemented with care uh, uh, because most of these models, as we've seen, always introduce some sort of bias based on the the model, the based on the data so data sets, based on the the way they were curated, the way that they were created, the way that the model, uh, whoever created the model. Um, I think there's a there's a lot of concern in that space. Luke, what are your thoughts? It's, uh, I mean, we we've all watched enough science fiction, read enough science fiction, you know, pontificated about the future enough to to know that. At the end, um, in the end, it's not a thing. It's not a tool that's going to kill us all. It's us. And, you know, we might use the tool to do it, but it's going to be us that does it. And so, um, you know, do we need to, to have a conversation about what we are and are not allowed to do with certain pieces of technology? Maybe so. But I'm not worried about I'm not worried about robot or overlords or anything like that. And I'm not worried about, I'm not worried about some Skynet scenario where all of a sudden, you know, our military system, you know, develops sentience and decides that the only thing that's creating wars no. is humans. So let's just wipe them out. Problem solved. <laughs> no. And I don't think that like, they're going to hit the, you know, automatic layoff button because we have robots all of a sudden, you know, we've, we've had automation <laughs> for a very long time. Um, the, it, it doesn't, I think as we, we've kind of noted earlier on the Gen AI stuff, it doesn't replace people. It augments jobs. It changes I things. I think it's like any other tool, right? You know, if all tools in human history exist to free up humans to do more complex things, every tool ever created by man exists to remove some menial task from the human and give them the opportunity to do something more complicated. And this is just another one of those tools. I'm with you both. I, I completely understand and I'm grateful that thought leaders are are worried about the possible ramifications of AI becoming sentient. Not that I think that it will, but it's better to worry about it and think about it ahead of time instead of be wrong. Uh, so I don't think that it will become that. I, I'm not even worried that its ability to generate code and to compete against itself and generative adversarial networks and to execute reinforcement learning. One could write a great science fiction story right now about how all these things come together and the AI rewrites its own code so that it can achieve things. But realistically, in the state of AI now, I'm not worried about that. I'm just glad people are. Luke, I like what you said though. It's, it's not that, you know, the tool itself is going to kill us. It's that people use tools to kill other people. Scott Galloway, the host of the Pivot podcast, always says AI is not going to take your job. Someone who knows how to use AI is going to take your job. I think the fear is that not that AI is going to kill us, but that someone who knows how to use AI and their military weaponry better than you, that that could be a danger. I think that there's a, a legit concern from a national security standpoint, and this applies to all countries. Um, there is a legit concern about uh potential super weapons giving an edge that evades a mutual assured destruction kind of scenario. So I, I, I know all the right people are thinking about that and worried about that, but I'm probably much more concerned about a military advantage that humans achieve using AI than I am about the AI itself doing anything. 
And I, I really think the real fear is that we need to worry about are what John talked about earlier, that these systems can have bias, accidental or on purpose. They can be, uh, we don't always understand how they uh, how they get the answers they do. In fact, we generally do not. Um, even the new LLMs have displayed emergent behavior that they weren't trained for. It wasn't one of the objectives of creating them. But in the consumption of vast amounts of text and code and other things, They've demonstrated some emergent surprising capabilities that in hindsight maybe shouldn't have been, but but were when discovered because it wasn't in the humans' minds as objectives for creating the LLM. So I do think we have to worry about potentially negative emergent behaviors being unfair, non-inclusive, disadvantageous to certain people, et cetera. Well, and you have to worry about, I think, what's actually powering these LLMs too. You know, this is... This is not just, uh, you know, the literal energy and electrons that are powering thousands of GPUs for a solid month to build these models. But think of the, uh, you know, the the tens of thousands of humans that we're using to annotate all of this data uh, all around the world. Yeah, um, there's a there's there's a lot of exploitation in in that space too. So it's it's um, uh, you know, it's it's interesting to see how some of these uh companies with their with their models are keeping it completely closed not really talking mm -hmm. about where they get their data how they do it um versus others who are extremely open about what they do uh are very collaborative uh it's a very interesting space uh to to follow right now yeah and you bring up a good point i don't think most people realize that humans play a key role in the capabilities of the llms not only did they develop the code for the llms but reinforcement learning for human feedback um, that human feedback is important in improving these. They they would the number of hallucinations and inaccuracies and such would be much larger without improvement that way. So um, let's talk about one more big tech breakthrough before we get into some of the fun tech trends that we're seeing in the second half of the year. I'm going to bring up one more, and that is quantum computing. And as you, my friends, know, this is a, a new passion area of mine. It's one that I believe in fundamentally from a physics standpoint that it it is absolutely a theoretical way to greatly surpass classical computing for certain algorithms. The questions are, can we do the level of precision engineering needed to manipulate qubits? And of course, I always have hope because biological systems manipulate uh, quantum states of nature all the time. The ammonia reaction, the nitrogen to ammonia reaction that occurs in all living things we still can't replicate. So we use a very expensive ammonia creation process in making fertilizers, the Haber-Bosch process. Um, it's just one of the many, many applications that we hope quantum computing can help us understand nature better, simulate nature better, and make better products and things. So I'm bullish on this. And thus, I was excited about the IBM and University of California Berkeley announcement last week of quantum supremacy on a problem that we expected quantum computing to be able to solve in the future, but they solved it in the present with an imperfect quantum system, to be sure. We know they're noisy. We know they become decoherent. But if you can solve a problem fast enough, then even with errors, you can repeat it enough times and hone in statistically on the correct answer faster than you could run it once on a big classical system. And I thought that was that was very exciting to me. It gives me hope that we'll find some value in the noisy era of quantum computing while we work to see if we can get to reducing noise, improving error correction, increasing coherence. Were y'all 
as excited about that as I was? Uh, you know, I, I've seen some interesting applications in quantum, like um, the uh, Samsung's quantum random number generator they're using in their phones and um, the, uh, uh, you know, kind of space communication uh, through entanglement. Um, I, I do agree there will be some some applications and I and I I I, de I definitely live in the uh the idea that we should be paying attention to this today. Um, but I'm still kind of on the, the pessimist side of like, well, I mean, this is probably like we've said for the last 20 years, something that's maybe another five to ten years out. <laughs> yeah, I think I think there's two two things to to, to wait for in quantum computing. One is it, does the set of non does does a set of algorithms exist that is solvable on quantum systems that is not solvable on traditional systems? One, um, I think that's going to if that set is discovered and that set is is determined to have real world applications. I think that's that's when quantum computing hits its stride. The other thing is, is an engineering problem. Um, quantum computers are really cool and they can do things very fast. Um, the question in my mind is, are we optimizing for the right things with quantum computation as it stands right now? So we, we, we're, we've optimized for speed, but we've done that at the expense of, you know, cost of the physical system itself and then additional inputs to the system. Unlike a traditional computer where you can power it with just electricity. Um, a quantum a, a quantum computer needs all sorts of chemicals and refrigerants and, and other inputs that, you know, are kind of a, a low level fixed cost for a traditional computer, um, but are substantially more expensive or more difficult to acquire for a quantum system. Um, you know, you can power a data center on green electricity, but you will, at least at the present, not find a way to cool a quantum system to executable state. Uh, without using liquid hydrogen or liquid helium um, in order to chill it. And in order to make all that helium, you're going to have to burn a bunch of natural gas. And there's no way to do that in a green way. Um, so. so I can answer both of those uh, questions. It's absolutely the case that there are algorithms that are provably superior on a quantum system than a classical system uh, in theory, uh, exponential and higher order polynomial algorithms in particular. Um, and a great example of this is just simply uh, trying to model the caffeine molecule. We all consume, consume caffeine every day. The quantum states of nature in a caffeine molecule cannot be accurately modeled on the largest classical supercomputer in the world, but it wouldn't require a very large quantum system to simulate that exactly larger than we have now, but not uh, unbelievably long before we can model all of the quantum states of this. And so we see many quantum physical processes, quantum molecular chemistry processes in the world biologically that we don't, that, you know, have biological implications that we don't understand from the uh, nitrogen to ammonia production and biological organisms to photosynthesis, to the way proteins fold exactly, et cetera. So we do all these approximations that something that simulates for the full quantum uh, nature of matter has a actual chance at doing and can be provably with quantum uh, physics, provably calculated what size quantum system would be needed to do that. So I, I do think that the theoretical potential is absolutely proven. I agree with you on the engineering uh, problem, but remember these quantum systems 
actually use less power than the largest supercomputers by a huge extent, despite needing to be super cooled with certain physical processes where you're using lasers and things to uh, take advantage of certain properties of physics to cool things. The actual energy usage of these systems for a problem that they can do faster than a classical system is less. So there's already people now looking at quantum computing as a green computing technology for the hard problems because it requires less than what is the world, number one system in the world at Oak Ridge? Uh, 20 megawatts, I believe. Is that right? Maybe just yeah, a little bit so. more than 20. Yeah, staggering amount of energy, totally worth it for the groundbreaking discoveries it will make. But there are certain things that a quantum system for much less power can do that it cannot do. So, but I agree with you. To me, the big challenge is the precision engineering part because manipulating electrons and in, in five nanometer uh, features in silicon is hard enough, but manipulating single qubits, then entangling them and keeping them entangled, that that's just... That's just really, really hard. And we're nowhere close to a fully coherent, noiseless quantum system. So, but I'm excited. I, I argue that the buzz is high and the IBM and Berkeley achievement justifies some excitement that we may find value with these imperfect quantum systems while we continue to work on the precision engineering. So that's my that's my take on it. Yeah. <laughs> No, I mean, I I think it's 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 another piece of the interesting things that are happening in the engineering space today, um, not just in quantum world, but also in like chip space and how that is evolving from uh, you know some of the older olden times of how chips were designed. Um, I think I think we're starting to see a lot of really interesting new, uh, I'll say, innovative type of uh, features being being integrated into everything. And I think uh, quantum is another piece that, you know, to me, again, I, it, if it's not a, a whole quantum system, maybe there are like AI uh, augmenting pieces that we would use out of quantum computing and out of the research that happens when we try to build yeah. systems like that. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that I'm, I'm highlighting it at mid 2023, but since the res result happened last week, that was groundbreaking. I feel okay in doing that, even though like VR, I think it might be 2027, 2028, 2029 before <laughs> uh, any companies are using it for uh, on a regular basis as part of their operation. And even then I think it'd be a small number. Um, uh, let's talk about some of the fun tech trends though, uh, to close out this podcast. What, what kind of fun and cool things are you seeing here at the mid-year point that maybe you weren't expecting in January? The self-driving cars are happening right, right here in Austin and yeah. Phoenix. Uh, you've got crews um, driving around town with, well, nobody's driving. <laughs> They're just vehicles driving around. Um, I see them all the time. We uh, sit outside at the bar downstairs in my building and the, it, one goes by every 10 minutes and there's nobody in it. And it's gotten to the point that people have stopped pointing and and going, oh, look at that. There's nobody in it. People are just now like, ah, oh, there goes one of those driverless cars. <laughs> yeah, I've seen probably six different uh, delivery bot services. Nobody cares about that anymore. <laughs> right. Oh, look, there's the thing again. Um, what else? Uh, flip phones are back. Moto has a Moto has a flip phone uh, with a phone on the front of it. Kind of like, you know, double phone. <laughs> I've seen that. I saw the ad for that the other day. And I, I so fondly recall my old Motorola Razor. And I really loved that phone. And so I can't say I'm going to rush out and buy a flip phone. But I, I have to admit, seeing the ad and, and reading articles about the resurgence, flip, resurgence in this, it's 
it's kind of got me on the borderline. Kind of part of me does want a flip phone. I think if nothing else, you know, it'd be nice to to see a return to the flip phone just for the sake of just for the sake of walking around. I mean, I know everyone has experienced this problem where the, the phone is now almost too large for the pocket in your pants. Yes. And yes, um, it'd be nice to go back to either. I have have not, I have not switched to, I have not switched to just having Velcro on my body so that I can (laughs) stick devices to myself. Um, But, you know, smaller, smaller phones would be great. I'm I'm with you, man. I, I once thought about, uh, I was buying a pair of jeans and I once thought, well, is my phone going to fit in the front pocket? And I thought, my God, I'm letting the size of my phone dictate what I'm thinking about in terms of buying clothes. And I don't want cargo pants to come back. So I, 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 I think a smaller phone, I might actually finally be ready to move back towards a smaller phone. But, you know, flexible OLED, I think that's the interesting piece of technology. And when we can finally fabricate flexible OLED screens in large sizes and we can get to, to, I want to get to that point you see in in a lot of science fiction shows where everyone has a a digital scroll where they just unroll the scroll and it's a, it's a screen (laughs) because then I can easily put it in my pocket. Hmm. And then, then you don't have to wear the stupid goggles. No, I don't want to wear goggles around. (laughs) All right. Which, (laughs) which one of us is going to be the first one with a flip phone? Neither one of you have one now, do you? Don't don't have a no, flip phone, no. but I'm slowly working my way into smaller and smaller screen sizes. So I think the next logical step is to just go. Yeah. But I need a I need I need you know more of the razor style and less of like the pixel fold. I right. don't need I don't need a giant phone that becomes an enormous tablet. I need a <laughs> that's right. I need a small phone that just a becomes a regular that becomes phone. <laughs> a usable phone when it's yeah a usable screen. I agree with you. What else are you saying in fun tech trends uh, at the midpoint of the year? Uh, uh, SpaceX, uh, blew up their, uh, launch pad pretty great this year. That was, that was pretty spectacular. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm not <laughs> sure. I hope that's not a tech trend for the second half of the year, but yeah, that was a spectacular, uh, on video incident. Um, I guess we should say though, that, you know, it's, it's not a slow, I mean, a rapidly erupting tech trend anymore, but I have been impressed at how many people I hear around the world are using Starlink. Uh, in rural areas I, I, in the US, I expected, but of course it's a satellite-based system, so it really can cover the world. And it's it's been amazing to hear about how people in, in very diverse locations are able to use Starlink to have connectivity. It's really become a global utility. I mean, for a cost, but I, that is really impressive how well that's worked out. I will say it works really great. Uh, we've used it uh, all across North America, and it it's fantastic. I mean, you got you have uh, almost you know cable at home speed. Internet. Yeah, you're using it in your camper van um, as you travel around the continent. Uh, my friend is using it on her sailboat when she's uh, out in the uh, open water. So yeah, it's you just use it anywhere. Take it with you. Connect from anywhere. It's a new world. Uh, you know, remote everything. Yeah. Right. Um, one tech trend that has emerged just very uh, recently, perhaps with the Reddit news, and I'm going to ask you two about this because I know you're, you're you're more aware of what's going on in Reddit than me, but there finally seems to be some pushback on social 
media. Um, the numbers, of course, for all platforms have been growing tremendously, but we're seeing lots of, uh, we're seeing the beginnings of states banning TikTok and of government agencies banning TikTok since there's concern about, about uh, the Chinese Communist Party's possible oversight of what the, the home company of TikTok is doing in terms of the algorithms underneath, the, the collection of data, et cetera. Um, there's the Reddit stuff that I don't even fully understand what's going on there. There's, uh, I don't even know if we want to get into Twitter. Um, that's a whole podcast episode on its own. And there's the rollback <laughs> of uh, some of the policies put in place, even at Facebook and YouTube to protect people from uh, false information. Um, what do you think's going on in the social media space? I, I would say the tech trend is more uncertainty than I've seen in a while and some flattening of growth, some more pushback on some things that I've seen in a while, but I'm not sure what the trend will be for the second half of the year. Thoughts? I I, I think, like you said, regulation is hitting in places. Uh, heavy regulation on news in Canada just hit and Facebook is pulling all news related posts out of their feeds, right? Um, yeah, Twitter and Reddit, I mean, they're they're realizing that all of their content is created by the people who use it. And if they make those people un unhappy, then they won't use it. Um, <laughs> they'll go find another place to be. Uh, and, you know, we've seen lots of uh, tools and, and sites like that over the last, you know, decade. Um, I just think it's another ride in the wave of different, uh, you know, interest of what what's a, what's a cool app uh, anymore. Um, how, how interested are you in following stuff on on this platform versus, versus that platform? Um, and how interested are you? I think people are a little more aware of what's happening with that data now. It's being used to train models. It's being used to target uh, people, you know, originally for ads, but now for just about anything. Um, and I think uh, out of that is some cool things I've seen uh you know, the trend of people moving to concepts like uh, the Fediverse, um, using like Kbin and Lemmy as link aggregators, um, and, you know, kind of getting away from that corporate-owned social internet experience, you know, just like the internet that we used to have, where people just had a... Um, a uh, a bulletin mm -hmm. board about an interesting topic. And you were like, I'm going to join that bulletin. John, board. it sounds almost like you're advocating uh, some momentum towards web three. Is that the case? I mean, towards, you know, distributed, uh, uh, yeah. Distributed hosting type, type of ideas and platforms. Yes. I mean, yeah. is this, but this isn't, I mean, is this web three or is this just web one again? It's kind of, I feel like it's kind of going backwards, which is, feels good to us. You know, I mean, what was the web originally? It was, it was very decentralized. There wasn't a lot of corporate control. You know, if you look back into the late nineties, um, you know, as long as you could acquire an IP address and, you know, you could, you could host a site or you could do whatever you wanted. Web 2.0, I think, you know, was the, the mass commercialization of the internet. And Web 3.0 is really just Web 1 Redux. I mean, we're going back to saying, you know what? I'm tired of everything in my life being an advertisement and everything in my life being a sales pitch or a way for people to find more efficient ways of convincing me to buy things. 
Well, it does carry forward though the not just the static web pages hosted on you know decently powerful computers of Web One, and then the smartphones and tablets and everywhere devices and the social media platforms and interactivity, the two-way flow of information in Web Two, Web Three uh, would. But but as you said, it all got commercialized in implementing that Web Two. So Web three is, I guess you're right. It's a it, in in some ways it's going back to that decentralization of Web one, while carrying forward the everything can be a device in this Web nature, but they're decentralized now. They're not all uh, slaves to a uh, centralized system of content generation and interaction. They can be their own producers of that. Yeah, I think that's real. That, that's the the real crux of it. You know. The internet is not just five data centers in the United States. Yeah. Um, as as many a DNS failure amongst AWS and Google Cloud have shown everybody, <laughs> um, it is really easy to just destroy the internet um, by messing up one DNS route uh, because so much of it lives in one location. Uh, going back to decentralized state where it's like, oh, well, this one site is out, but it's the only site out in the entire internet. I think we're okay. Um, and you know, at least in Web 1.0 days, you know, that one website probably didn't have a lot of content you were relying on anyway. But <laughs> well, this has been a great conversation. It's, you know, we always say this, but it's an exciting time to be alive in technology. And that makes sense since technology is always advancing, sometimes with exponential uh, rates of improvement, but always advancing and uh, very exciting times right now. And, uh, you know, going back to our first point, AI alone is going to be an exciting field in the second half of this year. I expect we'll see maturation of some of these generate uh, generative AI platforms. We'll see uh, some guardrails, but also some you know checkers for accuracy and preventing hallucinations, pre preventing certain kinds of gaming the system. And uh, uh, very excited to see the second half of this year evolve in that generative AI space. Yep, like you said, exciting time to be alive. Yeah. Well, let's let's close our podcast with that. Thanks a lot, guys. And um, I'll see all of you in person soon. And uh, thank you to our listeners. And we'll be back at you with a new episode in about a week. Thanks for listening to the Austin Forum Upload. You can listen to additional episodes and check out a schedule of our monthly in-person events at austinforum.org. The Upload is a production of the Austin Forum on Technology and Society, a nonprofit organization here in Austin, Texas.